1 Corinthians 10 and verses 12 and 13. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. In this period running up from the end of summertime to Christmas time, we've been looking at a, a number of important aspects of our faith, uh, of the Christian life uh, on a Sunday morning. Uh, going back to harvest time, we thought about thanksgiving, what an important subject that is. And then on uh, the balance of uh, Richard's time with us uh, in the one and other passages uh, on our away day and the following Sunday, we thought about the Great Commission to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. And we turn to Nehemiah and Nehemiah's great prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, and then we revisited Nehemiah and we saw how God uses seemingly insignificant things. The king's cupbearer to change even the history of the world and how our lives impact so widely, though we might not understand that at first. So this morning what I want to do is to come to this subject of temptation. Temptation, it's rooted here, isn't it, in our two verses, three times, either the word temptation or you being tempted uh, in these verses. So it's an important subject for us. Now Richard's in 1 Corinthians, but he's only got a chapter 3. It'll be quite some time before he gets to chapter 10. He's not here this morning, but I don't think I'm treading on his territory. And when we get there, well, it'll be good to go over these things again. But I think this subject really is one which is vital for us to understand. You know the mess that the world is in? is all because of sin, which came through temptation. And the mess that you and I get into is similarly mixed with temptation, leading us to sin. Temptation is mixed and mingled into the original sin of man, into the fall of man, and temptation is mixed and mingled into your life and the times in my life when we fall and fail and when we sin. So it's not a pleasant subject, but it is a very, very important subject. And it's a subject really that sort of divides, because if you're not a Christian, what do you want to hear about temptation for? Because isn't temptation quite naughty and quite fun in a way and don't the advertising people and the marketing guys don't they use temptation uh, as a, a means of hooking us in to eat chocolates or to buy a car or to do whatever they want us to do and uh, you see the word temptation it's not a it's not a bad word it's quite nice isn't it it's naughty it's fun but if you're a Christian, just this word temptation 
you will know that it's a dangerous diversion that leads us to sin. And it's a cruel deception that leads us to God's displeasure. And it's a shameful discovery of our weakness. When we see the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, we realize that the the outcomes of temptation which have caused us to sin, that sin is placed upon the Lord Jesus who was tempted in every point like we are, but without sin. But the temptation he suffered, we're told in Hebrews, he suffered because of it. So it's a serious subject. It's a subject for us to really get to grips with. Now what we've got in front of us is just uh, one sermon with some application. So it's not a sort of doctrinal thesis on the subject. We won't cover everything. But we want to cover the important things. So I want to do it seriously. I want us to think this morning about temptation's terminology. I want us to think about temptation's theology. I want us to think about temptation's psychology. And I want us to think about temptation's polymology. And no Googling the last one during the service. We'll explain it when we get there. But by doing that, let's, let's try and do that so that we can seriously consider this subject. And the first thing is, it's terminology. It's terminology. We have to understand what we mean by temptation. Now, the Bible uses the verb to tempt and uses the word temptation in a number of different ways. But the root of it is the Greek word perezo. The meaning means to try or to test or to prove. And temptation is uh, perasmos. Trying, temptation, testing, proving. Now it's used in the Bible in different ways. Now we may have different translations. We're using the New King James as our uh, church Bible, and uh, it appears here in uh, different ways. may appear in the version you've got in different ways, but the root word is the same word in each case. So let's have a look at some examples. So we're going to anchor our thoughts that today into 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 and 13. So keep your finger there and come with me to other verses if you want to, or just listen to what we are saying. So in Hebrews chapter 11, let's just look at a couple of examples of where this word is used, this Greek word is used. So in Hebrews chapter 11, and it's twice here in verse 17 and in verse 37. So in verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, it says, When he was tested. Now it's the same word as we're going to find as the word temptation. When he was tempted, tested, he offered up Isaac. Now we remember that occasion, don't we? What a test. What a trying. What a proving of his faith. That's the word. Hebrews 11 verse 37. Speaking of others who displayed great faith in the Old Testament. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. Used in the same way. They were tested. 
or tried. It's going to give you two more. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. These are quite random, but just using the word so you can see what it means. Uh, here's one of the letters, the letter to Smyrna uh, in the churches, the letters to the churches in Revelation 2. Do not fear any of these things which are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, tested, tried, proved. And then 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, if you're still going with me, or just listen, 1 Peter 1 and verses 6 and 7, where Peter is talking about the troubles that uh, Christians go through, the difficulties we go through. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire. And clearly it's God who's doing these testings. It is God who is testing and trying and proving our faith. So God uses, in that sense, temptation. He uses that testing. He uses the word, which in the Greek is the one word, which tries and tests our faith. And it is for our good. It is his pleasure to do it, as it were. Because as a father, he is pleased with his children as we are tested and, and, and proven and, and faith, which is implanted above in us by him and helped and encouraged by the Holy Spirit grows and flourishes. But our concern this morning is about the use of the word where that trying and testing and proving leads to sin. And that God does not do. God does not lead us into sin though he allows temptation. In the overall purposes of God, which at times are a mystery. But he is proving and testing and trying our faith. But testing sometimes is in the form of a temptation which leads or can lead uh, to sin. Now, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ was tested, wasn't he, in that way. But he never sinned. He never sinned. But we do. And it's what happened, isn't it? Right at the very beginning. Temptation is there. In Genesis chapter 3, we read, don't we, of the fall of man, of Eve taking that fruit, having been tested and tempted and tried by Satan. You will surely not die. You'll be like gods. She gave it to her husband. And that's the prototype, if you like. That's the prototype the, the, the archetypal temptation here is innocence that leads through temptation to sin and to God's displeasure and to judgment. So that's our meaning, which we're looking at, that meaning of temptation, that meaning of testing, that meaning which causes us when we're tempted to look towards sin with the ultimate displeasure of God. Now, we have to be careful, therefore, in the scriptures, that when we look at the words which are used, that we, we, we look at the context and say, now, how is the word being used? Because it can be confusing. And as a young Christian, I, I must admit, I found it confusing. Uh, I used to use the old authorized version that uses the word 
more so than the newer versions, where the word temptation and testing are, are used interchangeably. So we have to understand the context. Well, what's the context in our anchor passage? Well, the context is the, the failing and the idolatry of the people in the Old Testament. Those times which we've been thinking about earlier on last year, this year and the previous year, when they fell into that sort of temptation which led them to sexual immorality and to idolatry and so on. So there the word is used about that sort of temptation which leads to their, to their fall and their failure in God's displeasure. So that's just something about the terminology of temptation. We're using its terminology, we're thinking of temptation as that which leads to sin and to God's displeasure. So let's move to our second point. Temptation, it's theology. It's theology. Now there are great statements of theology, aren't there? We are very privileged to stand where we are. We're in the 21st century. We have great statements of theology behind us. Great statements of faith and confessions of faith and so on. And one of the simple ones is called the five points. The five points of what is called Calvinism. We prefer to use the doctrines of grace because that magnifies grace and not the name of a man. The doctrines of grace. What is the first point? Some of us know it as TULIP. T-U-L-I-P. What's the T stand for? It stands for the total depravity of man. The total depravity of man. What does that mean? Does it mean we're all totally depraved? No, not at all. It doesn't mean that. Though man can be very depraved, and we only have to read our newspapers or watch the television to understand how deep sin goes and how far it spreads. But what the theologians mean by that is that every part, every part of your life your thought life, your doing life, your will, every part of your life is touched and tainted by sin in some way. There's no perfect part of your life. Sin affects every part. The total depravity of man. There's nothing free from it. Nothing free from the taint or pollution of sin. In fact, we are born in sin. David makes that very plain, doesn't he, in Psalm 51. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. From the moment, that incredible thing that happens, where those tiny things come together in the womb of a mother, from that very moment, there's a sinner. There's a sinner. That tiny embryo growing in the mother's womb. It's a sinner. It'll be a sinner when it's born, when it's brought into the world. It's a sinner. He or she is a sinner. You're a sinner. You're born a sinner. The road that led Adam and Eve to sin was temptation. But for you and me, you're a sinner when you're born. Before ever you encounter temptation. Very plain, isn't it? The word of God is very plain. Romans 5 and verse 12 really nails it. Therefore, just as through one man, through Adam, sin entered the world, 
and death through sin, thus death spread to all men. Because all sin, he told us, where all of sin and can short of the glory of God. So Adam and Eve fell through the temptation that they under that, that, that uh, happened to them there in the Garden of Eden in their innocence temptation led to sin and they fell. But you're born a sinner and you'll sin whether there's any temptation or not. So theologically then where does temptation fit in? Where does temptation fit in to our understanding of our lives and indeed our Christian lives? Well, perhaps a helpful illustration uh, would be suitable. I can smell my illustration. Because in my mother's coal house, they were there. And I can smell them now. See, when I grew up and my dad went off to work, he used to go to work at 5.30 in the morning. He used to get up straight away on the coldest of days and used to go straight out to work. Well, we didn't get up at that time. My mum got us up, myself and my two sisters. And if it was really, really cold, the first thing that she would do is make a fire. What do you need to make a fire? Well, what did my mum need to make a fire? Well, she needed coal. She needed matches. She had a few sticks. She had some newspaper. Newspaper was very useful. And she had a dustbin lid. Now, those of you who are younger will say, what on earth did she have a dustbin lid for? Well, you'll have to ask us oldies. But she had something else. She had them kept in the coal house. And as children, we were never to play with them. Well, we were never to play with matches. We weren't allowed to play with these things. Do you know what they were? They were fire lighters. Fire lighters. Some of the oldies are nodding. and Some of the youngies are going, what on earth are they? Well, I don't know what they were made of, but I can smell them. I think they were infused with paraffin. That's probably why we couldn't play with them. That's why they were in the coal house on a shelf high above. Because you see, when you started a fire, it took a long time for the fire to get going on a freezing cold morning in an old house. But if you had fire lighters and you popped them in, then they accelerated and spread and caused the fire to get hotter quicker. That's what they were all about. And that's what temptation is. Temptation is to sin what firelighters were to the fire in our house when I was young. You see, you're a sinner, and so am I. And we will sin. We don't need to teach children to sin. We all sin. We are born in sin. But temptation is like popping those fire lighters in. It accelerates things. It spreads things. It causes things to grow hotter, quicker. 
so that temptation leads to sin. We've got it really laid out for us in James. So if you've got your Bibles and you can do so, turn to James chapter 1. In James chapter 1, we're given a series of events. And we have here (coughs) something of the terminology that we've been talking about where we need to be careful. (coughs) So in James chapter 1 and verse 12, if you're there, James chapter 1 and verse 12, James says this, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Now the use of the word there, remember our terminology, is trying, proving, and testing. Blessed is the man, the Christian man, who endures, the Christian woman, the Christian young person, who endures trying and testing and proving. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So here we have in verse 2, if you work back, James speaking about various trials. Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And in verse 12, he's saying, blessed are you. That's that's something which in the end will cause you to be blessed and 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 happy because if you endure that temptation there is a result there's the pleasure of God you receive a crown of life but verse 13 he uses the word in a different way he changes the word now to this word about this word temptation which is the luring and persuading and the drawing into sin because in verse 13 he says this let no one say When he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now you could get very confused here, couldn't you? You could say, well, hang on a minute. I thought thought you said that it's a, a, a question of counting it all joy when we fall into different temptations. Ah, but trials and testings and provings. But now, James is using the word in a different way. He says, you can't say I'm tempted by God, because God doesn't do the tempting that leads to sin. God cannot do that. Verse 14, but each one, everyone is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. You see, it's not God doing this. It's that which is inside of us. It is that which is tempting us. It is that which is drawing us towards sin. It's as if someone has put the fire lighters in and here's something happening. And what is happening is in our hearts, in our wills and in our thoughts, there's sin beginning to grow. Verse 15, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So here's the consequence, sin. This is temptation to sin. And James is really illustrating for us and showing us that what happens is a process here. We're sinners anyway. We're going to sin. Even as Christians, there's still that remaining sin within us. There's that propensity to sin. Ah, but there are things that can make sin accelerate and spread and grow. And God is not pleased with those things, nor the architect of them. 
Well, often in this church we say, don't we, can you give me an example? Uh, show me an example. I'll be able to grasp what you're saying. So let me give you an example. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 10. In 1 Timothy 6 and verses 6 to 10. Again, you can just listen if you want to. In 1 Timothy 6 and verse 6, Paul writes this to Timothy. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. He's talking here about positive things of the Christian life. Godliness and contentment, that brings great gain. And he's reminding him, verse 7, we brought nothing into this world. It's certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But, so we always have to look at that, don't we, and say, ah, there's a change here. But, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Something's happening here. Something's happening in this person's heart. They, they have a desire. They, they, they naturally like riches. They, they, they want to have stuff. And they're falling into temptation. Ah, things are happening here. The, the fire's beginning to get hotter. And a snare. And into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Can you see what happens? What happens is that that, that propensity to sin is accelerated and spreads and grows hotter through temptation. So number three, the psychology of temptation. I'm not going to spell it because I'm not quite sure of it. I'm looking at my heading whether I've spelt it rightly. There's lots of S's and Y's and C and H's there, but the psychology of temptation. What do I mean by that? I, I mean, what's, what goes on? How's it, how's it work? Well, we said this isn't a doctrinal thesis, this is a sermon, but if, if you want, as it were, a doctrinal thesis, then this is the book. The Puritan uh, Thomas Brooks uh, wrote this book, which has helped Christians over the centuries. Precious remedies against Satan's devices. And in it, in true Puritan style, he just goes through absolutely anything and everything you can think of on this subject much of which we haven't time to go through. But let me just tell you what he says here. Right at the very beginning, he says this, Satan's device is to draw the soul to sin. It's chapter 2. Device number 1, to present the bait and hide the hook. What does he mean by that? Well, he says, to present a golden cup and hide the poison, to present the sweet and the pleasure and the profit that might flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin, but hiding from the soul the wrath and the misery that will certainly follow the committing of that sin. See what he's saying? Temptation has a very sneaky way of showing you a golden cup 
but not mentioning or indicating that what's in the cup is poisonous. Showing you the bait, showing you the hook, rather, but not the bait. And there is a summing up of this book, really, and it's something like this. Satan never puts on your plate anything that you do not like to eat. Satan never puts on your plate anything that you do not like to eat. So Satan's never going to serve me curry because I ain't going to touch it. And there are things in your life where you are not tempted because, frankly, you just do not like it. Now, we need to be careful because we all have our weaknesses. and We're not disparaging of, of others, but, you know, when I was first uh, taken to the pub and I had not a clue what was going on. I was perhaps a bit more innocent than some of my school friends. <coughs> we got into the pub well before we were able to do so, age-wise. And they all sat down and they said, what are you having? I don't know. We drink orange juice at home. And I had whatever I had. Can't even remember what it was. And you know what? It was the most horrible thing I've ever drunk in my life. And from that moment, I thought, I'm not drinking this stuff. How can you drink eight pints of this stuff? So I've never had a trouble like that. Some of you have tried cigarettes, haven't you? We've all done it. Oh, my word. It's just horrible. But you see, Satan doesn't bother with things that don't attract you. But he does with things that do. There are three things that we know about Satan. He is our enemy. He is our adversary. And he hates you. And he hates all good in you. And he hates your saviour. He is a liar. He is openly telling you that evil is good. And don't bother about this good because it's no good. And he's a deceiver telling you that what he is putting on your plate will make you happy. Now you see, our propensity to sin, because of the indwelling sin in us, even as Christians, if he can accelerate, if he can spread, if he can make hotter the possibility of sin by putting on your plate what you love to eat, then he's going to pile your plate high. <coughs> Didn't he come to the Lord Jesus? We're going to think about this perhaps another time when he came to the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4. It was the first thing he did. He said to Jesus, didn't he, make these stones into bread. Make these stones into bread. Why did he say that? Because Jesus hadn't eaten anything for 40 days. 
He knew, you see, that there was a potential weakness here, which he would go for. And Jesus didn't sin, did he? Wonderfully so. You can see the point, what he's trying to do. So we've mentioned Satan, we've mentioned uh, the enemy of our souls, and we have to realize, therefore, in this whole matter of temptation, we face an expert. You know, I looked at my mum as she was dying uh, earlier on this year, and um, she was so weak and frail, um, unable to do anything. But when you, uh, when you look at your mum and you think back and you think, wow, she used to get up in the morning, six o'clock every morning in the wintertime, and she would make that fire. She would bring in the coal. She would start the fire. She would use the dustbin lid and the fire lighters. She was an expert. She was an expert in getting the fire going so that when we were able to get out of bed in the morning, have our wash and so on, and come downstairs to the living room, there was a roaring fire. She was an expert. And you're up against an expert in temptation. For thousands of years, Satan has perfected his expertise in this whole matter of temptation. In Matthew chapter 4, you'll read in there, we won't go there today because we'll go there another time, but it's a key passage. But when the Lord Jesus is is taken out into the wilderness and uh, there he doesn't eat for all that time and he spends that time with his father, that Satan comes to him and he and he tempts him and he's an expert and he knows what to do and he knows how to come. And we're amazed at how the Lord Jesus did not fall because we know that we would fall because he's an expert. And sadly, we're not an expert. We should be, but we're not an expert in resisting temptation. It's interesting, isn't it? In that passage in James, which we went through, where you've got that process, the tempter's not mentioned, is he? He's not mentioned there. In a sense, you don't need the tempter to make you to sin. But he's the one who accelerates the sin, accelerates the temptation, makes it hotter. I just read this this week. I came across this quote from Robert Burns. I don't read the poetry of Robbie Burns. Uh, uh, I used to work for a Scottish company. I had to go to Burns Night and all that sort of thing. Never understood what on earth it was all about. He was a godless man, really. But in, in the light of death, this is what Robert Burns wrote. He said this to God. Thou knowest that thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong, and listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong. So what he's admitting is this. In his whole makeup, the man that he was, there were wild passions. Oh, by the way, he's blaming God for those. But it's his sin. The wild passions which rage there often led me to wrong. So you can't blame Satan. The blame lies within. It's what the sin is in you that you need to understand is that which makes you to sin more. But the tempter comes along and he 
works his expertise on you. I came across this passage uh, this week as well. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And I quote it because it's an example really of what can happen when temptation uh, really sets going. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verses 1 to 5, <coughs> uh, Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica. He's away from them. Uh, he has no news from them. Uh, and he says this, he says, therefore, when we could no longer endure it, he wanted to know what was going on in this fledgling church, uh, which he loved very much, which he'd begun. He says, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother, a minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before, when we were with you, that we would suffer tribulations, just as it happened, and you know. Paul is so desperate to hear how things are going on in the church. So he said, well, look, I, I can't get to you. I haven't heard from you. I'm sending Timothy with this letter. And he says this, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labour might be in vain. That's a really serious thought, isn't it? That Paul is saying that the expertise of the tempter is so great and powerful that it could be as he hadn't heard from them, that the tempter had come and caused so much havoc in the Christians in the church that all the gospel work that Paul had done had been in vain. Now that should really make us tremble to think on this matter of temptation, that the temptation that comes to us could actually cause such havoc in our lives and in the church. And you remember Achan, don't you, in the Old Testament? He saw, didn't he, a Babylonish garment and some, some other things and some gold. And he took it, didn't he? And he hid it away in his tent. The whole of the people of Israel were affected because of his fall, because of the temptation. Well, everybody likes a good Babylonish garment and everybody likes the gold and the silver. But his heart, you see, the firelighter began to have its work, didn't it? So that he wanted it and he coveted it and he took it and he hid it and he denied it. And the effect was, well, so wide-ranging. So when we think about temptation, don't just think, oh, well, it's just a little bit of a temptation. And uh, I fell, I know, but it, it won't affect anybody else. It's not true. Lastly, temptation, polymology. Anybody know what polymology is? Some of you might be studying it if you're doing history. 
because it's the study of conflict and resistance. It's the study of conflict and resistance. And as far as temptation goes, there is in the scriptures much to help us in this matter of conflict and resistance. Now, I've only got seven things here. We've only got time just to really just whip through them one by one. But here they are. Three things, seven things about important aspects of this temptation conflict. Number one, it's in our text. Go back to our text. We said this would be our anchor text. And here it is. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12. And it rings out to every one of us. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think all this temptation stuff's easy, it's not a problem, I've got it covered, then you beware. Because Paul is using here to the church in Corinth the example of the Old Testament people of God. It's doing exactly what we've been doing in that series, journeying with God, and using the example and applying it to their Christian lives. And he's saying this, look at how they felt. Look at what they fell into. Now, if you think you can stand, you just be careful. You just beware. So that's our first thing. We are very liable to fall. Now, if you know you're liable to fall, you're extra careful, aren't you? We went climbing uh, up some uh, hills, climbing, well, a bit of fell walking in the Lake District recently. But where it's been wet and where it's slippy uh, and, and where paths have been worn, uh, going up's relatively easy. Coming down is difficult because you could go your length. So you take extra care. You look around you. You look what's coming next. You check to make sure that your wife's okay coming down behind you. Because if she falls, you're a goner. You see... If you're liable to fall, you take care. And part of this message, really, and its application is this, is just to shake us a little bit and say, you know what? I haven't been watching much recently. Number two, this is war. This is warfare. This is not a fun thing. You know, my mum, would be able to tell if me and my sisters had been playing with the firelighters. Because if you handled a firelighter, you couldn't get the smell off of your hands. And it's funny, isn't it? They say that your, your sense of smell is something which takes you right back to something back to years ago. I can smell those firelighters now because silly me. Well, if you're told not to, what do you do? Get them out of that packet, don't you? But as soon as you've done so, you've got the smell on your hands. Don't mess about. Don't play with fire. Don't play with firelighters. Don't play with things that you know that Satan loves to put on your plate and it takes you to sin and God's displeasure. If you play with them, He'll do more than play with you. 
This is warfare. This is serious. Number three, we are to study to resist. We're to study <coughs> to resist. Polymology is the study of conflict resistance. And we should be polymologists. We're told in James chapter 4. In James chapter 4, what we're told is this. James chapter 4 and verse 7. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Two things. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. It's a series of things in those verses. But one thing is clear. You are to resist. You are to do it. Nobody else is going to do it for you. You're not going to do it by osmosis. You're not going to do it just by turning up at church. Because this happens way outside of church. Temptation happens in the night. Temptation happens when you're on your own. Temptation happens when you're with your mates. Temptation happens when you're in town. Temptation happens all over the place. You've got to resist. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. Same word is being used by Peter as used by James. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be sober. Be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Resist him. The word that James uses and that Peter uses is antihistamine, which is anti, which we know is against, isn't it? Anti, against. Histamine, stand. Stand against. We are to study on how we are to stand against. Now, I can't do that for you. Because if you came to the lessons that I need about resisting the certain temptations that get me, you might sit in the class and say, well, that's not a problem to me. I can't believe that you fall to that. And I might turn up at your class and say exactly the same. You've got to do the studying. You've got to understand where your weak points are. You've got to do the resisting. You've got to do the thinking and the planning. Number four, you will need the whole armor of God to do this. The whole armor of God. To do this. It wasn't long ago Richard took us through the whole armour. Ephesians 6 and verse 13. Therefore take up the whole armour of God. What for? That you may be able to withstand. It's exactly the same word as James uses and Peter uses. It's the antihistamine word. It's the stand against. The resist. Withstand. You'll only be able to do it. Paul says... They all use the same word. There's no difference, no variation in what you've got to do. Ephesians 6 verse 13. To withstand in the evil day. By the way, having done all to stand. Take heed, says Paul, lest you fall. Study, be careful to stand. 
Number five, at times, <coughs> we may need to run. At times, we may need to run. Wait a minute, I thought you said you've got to stand. I thought you said you've got to take the armour and stand. I thought you said you've got to resist. You said you've got to be watchful. We have said all those things. And we said this. At times, you may need to run. You may need to run. Joseph ran, didn't he? Joseph ran. Lie with me. He was a good-looking bloke. She was a good-looking girl. No one else was around. He ran. 2 Timothy 2.22 Flee youthful lusts. Oh, well, that's a text for the young ones. No, it's not. That's a text for all of us. I'm not a young one anymore, but I still have youthful lusts. Flee youthful lusts. In other words, those things which have stuck with you, have bugged you, have, have plagued you and troubled you right from your youth. Still do, don't they? They still do. You know, some of us in our 60s, 70s and beyond, and we'll tell you this, they don't go away. Flee these things. 1 Timothy 6, 11. And in our passage, you notice our passage, last verse that Ben read, therefore my beloved, flee from idolatry. So there are times to flee. And it, what it means is this, you know, you can feel the fire getting hotter. You can feel the fire lighters are in. Get out of there. Turn it off. Log out. Put it down. <coughs> Get away. Drop that friendship. Whatever it is. Flee it. Get out of it. Because there are times when that is necessary. Number six. You have a great promise. You have a great promise. All this could be pretty daunting for us, couldn't it? But our, here's our anchor text, isn't it? In, in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. Well, verse 12 told us we've got to be careful. We've got to take heed lest we fall. But here's a great promise. No temptation. Now, how's he using that word? Is he using the word about temptation to sin? Or is he using the word about testing and trials and difficulties? Well, what's the context? Well, it's actually both. And I think it's right, and it's right, it can be used in both circumstances. But here, look, it's being used, isn't it, in the context of temptation to sin. No temptation has overtaken you, such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond which you are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That's why sometimes we have to flee, because God, as it were, opens the door and says, get out, here's the way. Here's how you can get out. And also, he tells us, doesn't he, in this passage, I think it's a right interpretation too, that through the trials and difficulties that stretch us right to the limit with all sorts of other things, that he will make a way for us to escape. Number seven, lastly, we're on the victory side. Don't 
forget it. We're on the victory side. Don't forget it. 1 Corinthians 15.57 Thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if you are walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, if he is most precious to you, if you have sung this hymn this morning, which where we began, where we said, praise my Saviour, precious Jesus, if you are walking with him, then in him we are strong. And there's no doubt about it. That when we're away from him, when we're cold towards him, when he is distant, as it were, from us, then the devil comes in and says, let me put some fire lighters in. We have discussions sometimes at pastors' meetings about the temptations and difficulties we face. And men who are down, men who are lonely, men who are in the study in difficult circumstances with few people or perhaps have been criticised and uh, perhaps are going through troubles. Well, that's the time you put the computer on and you go to those places that you should not go to. And that's not just men in ministry. That's all of us. So we need to give some thought and some understanding and some preparation to our resistance. But remember this, we're on the victory side. Thanks be unto God who giveth us the victory. And we can come to our Saviour, can't we? Ask the Saviour to help you, comfort, strengthen and keep you. He is willing to aid you. He will carry you through. Has he not taught us to pray? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that uh, though we often do sin and temptation comes and we fail and we fall, yet you have told us if we, are to con if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, we come to confess before you that so often the fire is burned hot. We have seen temptation accelerate sin that perhaps uh, we've touched and we've played with and the fire is burning. And Lord, we are sorry and we repent and we turn to you. But we thank you, Lord, that you are gracious and you are kind towards us and you restore and help us. So, Lord, we pray we may be serious over this whole matter. And Lord, that you would help us, we pray, to resist the devil so that he will flee from us. and Give us, we pray, the wisdom at times to flee from him. So we commit ourselves to you and ask you would apply these things to every heart. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.